Let's pray. Father, it is by your grace and by your mercy that you give us life. It is faith as a gift given to us by which we believe in your son, Jesus Christ, and it is for him, for his glory, for his exaltation, and for your glory, Father, that we are saved. It is Jesus who we want to exalt this morning. It is Christ who we want to lift up and glorify and magnify. So make much of Christ this morning. Make much of Jesus and let him be to us more than than just an idea, but let him be the person that he is to us, a savior and a king, our master, our ruler, our sovereign Lord. And fill us with your spirit as we commune with you so that your spirit would teach us your word, teach us your truths, convict us of sin and call us into righteousness and lead us and cause for us obedience to your word so that our lives would look like Christ. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Colossians chapter 3, last week Christian preached verses 1 through 3 and verse 4. But if you look at the beginning of, of chapter 3, what you'll notice, and Pastor Christian talked about this last week, uh, chapters 1 and 2 are really more of like a theological or doctrinal dissertation on some realities that Paul has to address because there's heresy creeping into the Colossian church. And so Paul deals with that heresy doctrinally. And then in chapters 3 and 4, that doctrine becomes a reality in our lives in the way that we practice our Christian lives. And so chapters 1 and 2 are heavily doctrinal. Chapters 3 and 4 are heavily practical. And verses 1 through 4 in chapter 3 kind of lay the groundwork for the remaining verses that get extremely practical. Because if you look at verse 5, he says, put to death, and then he starts naming a bunch of sins. In verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen one, as chosen ones. Um, and then he lists a bunch of uh, characteristics of Christ that we should display. And so it becomes very real to our practical Christian living but the foundation of that Christian living is doctrine, is truth, is the theological realities about who Jesus is, what he's done, and especially for Paul and Colossae, the comparison between what the Colossians believed initially about the gospel and then how they're swayed off course by, by uh, false gospels. And then Paul counters that with the reality of who Christ is. And then that reality, that doctrinal truth about who Christ is, really comes into practice in chapter 3. And so in verses 1 through 4, we still get some practical living. We heard this earlier, or last week. Um, seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. That's very practical to our Christian lives. But still here within these first four verses is some really foundational doctrinal truth. And what we'll see today is how that works out into verse 4. So in, in verses 1 through 4, you could break it down into five R words, words that start with R. And verse 1 is a reminder. You have been raised up with Christ. In verses 1 and 2 is our responsibility. Seek the things above, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Verse 1 tells us our resource, which is where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 3 tells us the reason, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So that's what Pastor Christian covered last week. And now we get to verse 4. And today Paul closes this portion of text in verse 4 with the fifth R, which is Revelation. There are three revelations in verse 4 that are significant to our salvation and our future and how we live our lives. And each truth builds upon the other truths. So truth 1 in verse 4 makes truth 2. Truth, truths 1 and 2 
make truth three. And, the, the tr- and truth three is really that practical how to live my life truth. So we get to verse four and Paul writes, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So these three truths in verse four are truth number one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Truth number two, the revelation of his saints. And truth number three, the revelation of Christ in his saints. So we're going to address these one at a time as we work through this one verse. So truth number one, and when we get to the end, when we get to truth three, I'm going to take truths one, two, and three, and I'm going to reword them for you to make them a little more like um, tangible, a little more understandable, and a little more practical to your understanding. And so we'll get to the rewording of these truths, but for now, I want us to see these truths in this way because of the text. So truth number one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse four, Paul writes, when Christ appears... So what he's telling us is there's going to be a day in the future when Christ appears, and what he's referring to is the second coming of Jesus, this future event when Jesus returns to earth to conquer his enemies and to fully and finally reveal himself to the world in his glorified state. This event will be unlike anything else you've ever seen before or any human has ever witnessed before. It will trump all the significant events throughout all of human history from uh, the, the flood, which is a massive worldwide event. This will trump that. This is, the, the, the flood was a, an image, a glimpse of judgment. It was a worldwide judgment by God which pales in comparison to the return of Christ where judgment will be cast on the whole world and this will be a judgment unlike anything anyone has ever known before, including the flood. This, is, this, this, is, this return of Christ is, is more significant than all of the world wars, all of the wars in the world that we've ever had combined. Because all of those wars were people versus people. The return of Christ would be God versus people and there will no, no human will stand a chance. And this will be Christ revealed, Jesus in his glorified state, coming back to destroy those who hate God and oppose him, and he'll do so with those whom he calls his people. And we read about this momentous occasion in Revelation 19. So we've got in Colossians 3, 4, Paul saying, when Christ appears. So it's just... No details, just a statement of fact, an indicative statement that Christ will come back. There will be a moment when Christ appears. That's not a lot of detail. The only other detail he gives us there is that we'll appear with him in glory. So there's not a lot of detail here, but we look at Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, and we get a lot more detail. So Revelation 19, 11 through 16 And John, the author, writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. From his mouth, verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I skipped verse 14, and that's on purpose. I'll come back to that later. But this text expresses several aspects of Jesus' return. Overall, what John is describing here is the revelation of Jesus or the truth about Jesus that, that at this point will no longer be deniable by any human being. Uh, I just saw a video this week of this woman 
who's got some, I don't know, some TV show, uh, some broadcast, and she's sitting there ranting about the Bible and how much she hates the Bible. And she's like, I don't care if you're a Christian and what your Bible says, your mythical little book is what she called it, her little mythical book. I don't care what it says. You can have your Christianity and I'll fight for your rights to express your religious freedom, but don't impose your Bible on me. Don't impose your Christianity on me. I don't believe it. I don't believe in your God and I don't believe in your Bible. Christian sent that to me. And I replied and just said, one day she will. Philippians 2, 10 through 11, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Whether in heaven or under heaven or on earth or under earth, everybody will recognize Christ. And at his return, there will no longer be debate about who he is or whether he's real or if he's truly God. There will be no debate. They still will not believe in faith. Demons believe that Jesus is real and that he's the son of God. They're not saved. They're not elect angels like the chosen angels. And so... There will be people on earth who still see the return of Jesus Christ, God himself, in the fullness of glory, display, uh, described as it is here in Revelation 19, and they will still make war with him. And upon this revelation, as the world makes war with him, their failure to succeed against Christ will, will be revealed in just a matter of moments, in an instant, because Jesus will not go to war in the sense that, like, he hands us all swords and we're like, let's go, and we charge the hill, and we're like battling other humans with swords, and some of us are getting killed, and some of them are getting killed, and it's blood. It's not like that at all. He simply speaks. He simply declares judgment and wins. It says in verse 15, Revelation 19, 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. That sword are his, is his words. And his words will be the victory. His words will conquer the enemy. He doesn't have to pull out a real sword. His words are a real sword. More real than a real sword. And Scripture often refers to God's words as a sword. Ephesians 6, 17 says, The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So whether it is Jesus speaking or the Father speaking or the written Word of God given, us, given to us by the Holy Spirit, all of it is fully and authoritatively God's Word, which he often describes as a sword. And this analogy to the sword has meaning because of what Hebrews 4.12 says. The author writes, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we see here that the word of God is compared to a two-edged sword because a two-edged sword is sharp on both sides, meaning it pierces anything. It's not dull on one side, it's sharp on both sides, so if you pierce anything, it will cut through whatever you're piercing. And in the analogy in Hebrews 4.12, this is human body. The way that a double-edged sword pierces joints and marrow, breaks bones, cuts through bone and flesh with ease, so also the word of God cuts through thoughts and intentions of the heart divides the soul and the spirit. It discerns reality, truth from lies, holiness from unrighteousness. That's what the word of God does. And then in Revelation 1.16, John describes Jesus this way. As he sees him, he says of Jesus, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's Christ described again as his words from his mouth coming 
a sword. And that sword is the word. And so Christ is the word of God. John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. And the word was God. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Christ is the word. And then our Revelation 19 verse uh, chapter. Verse 13. He is called the word of God. So Christ is the word of God. We have Christ fully in this Bible. We have the Holy Spirit in us who delivers us the truth of God's word. And we have Christ himself in us, dwelling in us. Galatians 2.20 is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the fullness of Christ dwelling in us right now in the Holy Spirit. And we have the fullness of Christ given to us in the word of God. And so in our Bibles today, we have sort of a stand-in for the presence of God. Now, I have to be careful when I say that because it makes it sound like the Bible is like this secondary, not as important as the actual presence of God himself. But 2 Peter 1.19 tells us otherwise because Peter describes being at the transfiguration of Christ. He himself saw Jesus' glory revealed on the mountain of the, at his transfiguration, and then he hears God's audible voice speak and say, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then Peter himself, who saw that very thing, says in 2 Peter 1.19, we have something more sure. More sure. The prophetic word of God. So the Bible is not like a substitute teacher. Remember when a substitute teacher would show up and you're like, ha ha, we got the day off of school today, right? We're going to watch videos. We're going to mess with this teacher. We're going to get away with so much. And you just didn't, you didn't give the substitute teacher the same respect or the same authority. The Bible is not a substitute teacher. This is Christ. It carries the same authority and the same truth. And we only know it because of Christ who lives in us through the Holy Spirit reveals its truth to us. This is God's voice. It is no less authoritative or powerful or meaningful than if God were to speak down from heaven right now and declare truth to us. So we have the written word now But at the revelation of Jesus, we will have the word in person. No longer will we need the written word in the way that we do now because truth will be permanently stamped on our hearts as the truth is already by the Holy Spirit currently right now stamped on our hearts. 2 Corinthians 3.3 says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Truth is written in our hearts because our hearts have been changed. We've been given new hearts, regenerated hearts by the Holy Spirit who knows the word of God, who is the spirit of Christ, and Christ is the word, and the word lives in us. That's why when you read the Bible, it makes sense to you. I've had many conversations with unbelievers about the Bible and I am amazed at how the most simple, basic, elementary Christian truths from the Bible don't make sense to them. But we have the word of God in our hearts now, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.3. And that is a reality we carry with us today. But at the revelation of Jesus, sin will no longer impede the word of God in our hearts. That's a problem because, for us now because even though we have the word of God and we have the Holy Spirit in us, we see this, re- this reality in Galatians chapter 5 that there is the Holy Spirit in us who is producing righteousness, but then our flesh desires sin. And so we're at war within ourselves. We're, in a, we're at a war within ourselves that we don't even need to be in because our flesh has already been conquered. But in our sinful flesh, we pull up sin and we want to sin. And so our understanding of the Bible and the, and the fullness of its truth is impeded. So we have arguments over interpretation of verses and what certain things mean and who God is and how he behaves and the things that he does and says. 
But at the revelation of Christ, our flesh is gone. And all we are is glorified in our perfected state. And no longer is the word of God infected by our flesh or ruined by our sin. Our understanding is clarified and becomes clean and pure and perfect and righteous. And the word of God makes sense. And the truth about who God is becomes clear. Now don't get me wrong. There's a, there are an infinite number of things. Infinite number of things that we still will not know when we are glorified. Because we will spend eternity, which is an infinite amount of time, learning an infinite number of new things about God or new realities that we have not previously considered. Or essentially, God will continue to fully, God will continue to reveal to us his glory for eternity because his glory has no end. And so, at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we don't suddenly become like, know everything like God. But we know everything we need to know to enjoy his revelation of glory for eternity infinitely. And it's going to be glorious. And as we understand, or as, as Christ is revealed and we understand his glory and we understand his word, we will see reality just in a completely different way. I mean, imagine what that's going to be like. We, we can't perceive anything without sin. I mean, even our most holy and righteous thoughts are influenced by the fact that we live in a sinful flesh still. Even the most holy behavior, the most righteous thoughts, the purest realities about Scripture that we understand, even in our most closest thing to perfection that we can become are still, in, still infused with the sinful flesh. Just imagine understanding reality, having a thought, having a brain, having a mind and a heart that isn't impeded by sin anymore. And we will see Christ for who he truly is. Not only will we have truth eternally written in our hearts forever, but we will have the audible voice of God in Christ in our presence forever. And the implication here for us that we can draw from that reality is that the Bible has the same authority as the very voice of Jesus himself. We're not going to stand in front of Christ and go, finally, finally you're here to talk to us. I mean, we were just like, you know, using your Bible for a while. That was hard. Can you clarify some things for us? He's going to say, it wasn't hard because the Bible wasn't good enough. It was hard because you weren't good enough. That's the reality. I mean, he'll say it way kinder than that. <laughs> but we're not going to go, oh, we finally have something that we didn't have before. We're going to say, finally, we see your word for what it truly is. And at his revelation, he will unleash his words, or as verse 15 says, his sword will come out of his mouth. His words will come out, and they will be Words that are cast on a world that hates him and opposes him and they will be words of judgment that destroy anyone who rejects him or opposes him or hates him. Now, Paul's agenda in Colossians 3, 4 is not primarily to expose the details of Jesus' revelation at the end of time, okay? So I'm diving a little deeper. I think when we look at the Bible and we see Paul writing we have to understand that Paul says little statements, things like when Christ appears in Colossians 3, 4, and we have to kind of backtrack a little bit and go into the mind of the author and, and, and realize what does the author know when he writes that statement? He knows more than that statement alone. He knows other things too. And so we look throughout scripture to understand what the authors know that supports or defends deeper truths about that statement. So he writes, when Christ appears, and then we look into Revelation 19 to see what does it mean when Christ appears, to see a deeper reality. And it's important that we understand some of these details because even though Paul doesn't mention more detail 
other authors do, and it helps us fulfill our doctrine about the return of Christ. And in understanding this doctrine, it starts to make sense. It starts to make Paul's practical application make more sense. So we got to dig into the mind of Paul and understand the deeper things, even though he only gives us his little sentence. We got to go deeper so that when we get to Paul's practical point, it flourishes in our life. Meaning the future revelation of Jesus is the foundation of Paul's argument for our second truth in Colossians 3.4. So truth number two is the revelation of his saints. Now I skipped Revelation 19.14 when I read 11 through 16. And we come back to it now. During the return of Christ, when his vengeance and glory are revealed to the world, there is this very important truth that we must cling to as believers. And Paul tells us that truth in Colossians 3, 4. So he says, when Christ appears, and then he says, at that appearance, you also will appear with him in glory. So that text we're reading in Revelation 19, 11 through 16 is the return, the appearance, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, it says this. John gives more details about our role in Christ's appearance of glory. And he says, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's us. That's believers. That is the army of his saints, believers from earth who are either dead or raptured or whatever you believe. We're not getting into some of those details, but it's the totality of God's chosen people at the time who are truly, who truly believed in the gospel. But there's a difference between Christ and us. Jesus reveals himself also riding on a white horse like we are, except notice that in verse 13, it says that Jesus is clothed in a white robe dipped in blood. And then verse 14 says that we are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, not dipped in blood. Jesus' robe dipped in blood is imagery of his sacrifice. It sets him apart as the lamb that was slain. That, that blood-stained robe shows him as a lamb that was slain. And John, in Revelation, actually describes Jesus as not just the lamb that was slain, but literally says he looks like a lamb that was slaughtered. So there is this imagery about the gospel, about the sacrificial role of Christ that is on display while he returns in glory as the lion. And so he reveals himself as a lion of Judah who has come to conquer and destroy the enemies of God while also revealing in his blood-stained gown his role as sacrificial lamb. Now Jonathan Edwards, famous, awesome, great preacher and theologian, one of the most influential theologians of all time, calls this, you don't have to remember this phrase, but I love this phrase, the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Okay? Now, keep in mind, this is a guy who would write a book and his title would be 150 words long. Okay? So, and this is, this is a couple hundred years ago. Okay? So, he called it the admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. And what Edwards says is there is an admirable conjunction or meeting of diverse and paradoxical elements in the person of Jesus Christ. And his first example that Edwards uses is Jesus Christ being described as both a lamb who was slain and a lion who conquers. That these are opposing realities if you are slain, you did not win. You lost. If you are slaughtered, you did not live. You died. Yet Christ is slain and slaughtered. So how can he also be the lion who, who eats lambs? A lion who is king of the jungle, 
who conquers and is victorious over all of its enemies and adversaries. How can he be both? How can he be dead and then alive? How can he be slaughtered but living? How can he be defeated yet victorious? Because he's not defeated and he's not dead because he is the lion. And so Edwards explores these diverse excellencies, how Christ can be both of these things at once. And we see it best displayed at the revelation of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19. And only Christ can bear these diverse excellencies at one time because as the author of Hebrews, John, writes, or not Hebrews, I'm sorry, the author of Revelation, John, writes in, John chapter, or in Revelation chapter 5 is that only Christ is worthy. That's how he can bear both of those realities at once, both of those excellencies at the same time. And it is because he bears these two diverse excellencies that we are able to follow him in gowns of pure white. Jesus' robe is stained with blood so that ours can be white. And that's that the beauty of verse 14, of verses 13 and verse 14, that he is wearing a robe stained in blood, signifying his sacrifice, so that we can wear pure linen, white and pure. The only reason we get to wear righteousness or perfection or holiness or Christ at all is because he is stained with blood. And he'll wear that gown as a reminder to us of his endless sacrifice so that we never forget the glory that Christ purchased for us It's glorious imagery of the gospel in the revelation of Jesus Christ that his saints who follow him into war trust him who sacrificed his life for theirs. And and the reward for us to be called saints or called chosen or called elect is that we share in his glory. In 1 Samuel 17, David kills Goliath. None of the Philistines wanted to fight Goliath. They were terrified. Philistines are mocking the Jews. David comes out. Goliath mocks David. And what does David do? What role does David play? Think about this. David is often, throughout the Old Testament, and then again in the New Testament, it's clarified for us, that David is a type of Christ. He's a forefather to Christ, and he's a type of Christ. And And what David becomes to the Israelites in the battle against the Philistines in 1 Samuel 17 is he becomes their savior. They're terrified to fight the enemy. And David says, I'll fight him because God fights for Israel. I can't defeat him. God's with me. God will hand me the victory. God will have the victory. David trusts God like Christ trusts God in the garden and says, I don't want to die. That's not my will, but my will really is your will, Father, and your will is for me to die. So not my will, but your will be done. I will go be victorious on the cross and in the resurrection. Same thing that David says. It's not my will. I don't want to fight him. I can't fight him. God will fight him through me. God will have the victory. And he slings a stone and he kills the giant. And what happens as David becomes sort of the savior of Israel in that moment? What happens with the rest of the Israelite army? They go from terrified of the enemy to satisfied in the victory and they plunder the Philistine camp. They pursue the Philistines for miles and then they plunder the Philistine camp and they celebrate in the victory of David as if it's theirs. And they reap the rewards and the glory of David's victory, which is really God's victory through David. So it is with us that though it is Christ alone who wins the final battle. It is Christ alone who has purchased our souls. It is Christ alone who has the victory on the cross and in his resurrection and in the final revelation. It is Christ who declares with his words victory and judgment. And though it is him alone, we fully share in the spoils and glory of his victory because 
in Christ, we are in Christ. We are one with Christ. We share in his glory. We share in his righteousness. We share fully in his glory, fully in his righteousness, fully in his holiness, and fully in his eternal splendor, and fully in his majesty. We to spend eternity in the fullness of his presence, which is fullness of joy. Psalm 1611. So right now, there are billions of people in this world who do not believe in Jesus by faith. But at the revelation of Christ, not only will his glory be unveiled, but so also will all of his saints be unveiled. And the unveiling of his saints will be to Christ as a husband. Okay, so like, think about this. We, we think, what does it matter if the world sees that we're believers? Like at the revelation of Christ, what, why does it matter if we're there with him, riding on horses, white gowns, showing the world, his is dipped in blood because he's a sacrificial lamb, and ours are white because his is dipped in blood, because he died for us. And if you're thinking he's a slaughtered lamb, check Christ now, eyes are flame of fire and he spits swords, which is his word to declare victory and judgment on the world. Now he's a lion. There's no question about who Christ is. Why does it matter if the world sees us? Because Christ cares about us. We are his bride. We are are the completion of his plan. Not because we're special, but because we're not. That's what makes it glorious. That he would take mud and dirt and turn it into glory. Yes, you are mud and dirt. That's where we came from. And turn it into glory, into his glory. And that's the beauty of the revelation, not just the revelation of Christ, but our second truth is the revelation of God's people in Christ. Because that is the glory of Christ, is his church, his bride, And his return will be like Christ as a husband pulling back the veil of his bride on their wedding day at the altar. It will be a moment of intense joy for Jesus to see his perfected bride and to reveal the beauty of his bride to the world. That's his his glory. And it will be a moment for us of intense joy to see ourselves as perfected by the love of our husband Christ, meaning one day the entire world will see who was and who was not truly saved. The whole world will see the beauty, not just Jesus, not just the beauty of Jesus in his glory, but Jesus' most prized possession, his people, his church, his bride. That is what Christ wants to do. Husbands, this is your role in your marriage. Ephesians 5 says that we are to be like Christ to our wives, sacrificial, sanctifying her with the washing of the word, washing with the water of the word. So we sanctify our wives with the word. Why? To make her pure and blameless and without blemish as we present our wives to Christ. Jesus, look at my wife. Look at what I've done with her. I showered her in the word, and now I present her to you holy and blameless, not because I made her holy and blameless, but because I showered her in your word, which is perfect, and the word has sanctified her. And now I bring her to you sanctified by your word, which is your glory, and now she's gloriously without blemish for you, Christ. That's my job as a husband. Husbands, that's your job with your wives. And Paul makes that example for us to clarify that that's what Christ does with the church. That's the point. He's saying your marriage is like the gospel. Husbands are to be like Christ, sacrificially loving your wives and then sanctifying her so that she can be without blemish. Just like Christ sanctifies you, how? With the word. And the word sanctifies you. This is why, this is why we preach over and over again. Be in the word, be in the word, be in the word. This is why we have men's Bible study on Friday mornings and women's Bible study on Tuesday mornings and four life groups. This is why all of our ministries right now have nothing to do with anything except the word of God. That's all we're doing. And when people tell me, well, let's do this ministry and that ministry, I'm like, no, it's not. 
Let's not. Let's mature in Christ. Let's grow in the Word. Let's spend a couple of years being sanctified by the Word. And then I think our ministry ideas are going to start getting filtered and refined by the Word as we are sanctified and grow in Christ. And then our ministry ideas are going to be exactly what Christ wants in our church. And that's why everything we do is Word-centric. That's why all of our ministries are Word-centric. And so, our whole role as husbands is to magnify this reality about what will happen in the end when Christ will finally go, hey world, I know you hate me, but I have something really awesome to show you. Look at my beautiful bride. But you know what? Does Jesus care what they think? No. Who is he presenting us to? His Father. God, Father, who does Jesus want to please? His Father, does he want to please man? No. He has no desire to please man. He has a desire to please his Father. And so he's going to present the church, the beauty of himself expressed in the church because we become sanctified and purified and holified, if that's a word, I just made it up, and righteousified in his word, and he's going to present us to the Father perfect. He's going to go, Father, look at the beauty of myself in my people. Look what I've done. I've taken your creatures, your people, these dirt balls that you turned into people that are wretched, sinful, wicked humans who want nothing but death and sin because they hate you. And we have, by your will, Father, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, regenerated their hearts. We have called them to you, elected them, regenerated their hearts, given the gift of faith, responded in faith, and we have then saved them, justified them, and have then sanctified them for a lifetime. And now, look at them, Father, they are glorified in the perfection of myself. Isn't my church beautiful? Isn't my bride glorious? And the fathers will say, oh, yeah, they are. Because they look like you, son. We are not glorious or beautiful because of anything you've ever done or will do. It is Christ and Christ alone in you. There is nothing in you that is good without Jesus Christ. You will never do a good thing for the rest of your life on your own power. We got these men working on this construction project, and I told them this week, I was like, I really, 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 in my flesh, want to praise you guys for what you're doing, but, you, but this, you're doing this for Christ, in Christ, because of Christ, for the glory of Christ, and they can't, they can't build this by, the, by their own, like, well, I'm just a really good builder, and that's why I did it, and that's why I'm good at it. That's nothing. That's worthless without the motivation or the heart or the desire or the purpose or the reason being that it is Christ building those walls. Why are we giving women a new bathroom? Is it because we love women? We do. Women, we love you. I'm going to tread carefully here. It is because we love Christ. And Christ loves the women in this church. And the women deserve a cleaner, nicer, better bathroom. In fact, they don't deserve that. Is a reality. But we love them because Christ loves them. We love you women because Christ loves you. And we want to bless you. And so we give you a bathroom for Jesus. We give you new walls for Jesus. We're going to put in a door in the back of the sanctuary for Jesus. We're going to clean the church for Jesus, because of Jesus, because we love Jesus, because we want to serve Jesus. I go, we go to Bible studies, not because Pastor Mark or Pastor Christian told me to, but because of Jesus, because I want to know Christ, I want to serve Christ, I want to love Christ, I want to learn about Christ, I want to be like Christ, I want to show others how beautiful Christ is, I want to be righteous like Christ so I can lead unbelievers to Christ. I need more Jesus. I don't desire him enough, so i got to get in the Word. So I'm going to Bible studies. And I'm going to life group and I'm going to spend three times a day at least I'm going to spend time in the word because I want to desire more and I don't. And the only way I will is if I put my face in his words. Amen. And he will work and you will grow and you will love him and your affections for Christ will skyrocket. One day, all of that work that Christ is doing in you will reach its culmination in the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ as he shows up to conquer the world and we ride behind him in glory, in his glory, 
that we get to possess and own for eternity. And we will be the beautiful, sanctified, purified, perfected bride of Jesus Christ in which he will find his great, great joy in. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows those who are his. And though he knows his saints and the world does not, there will be a day when he shows off his glory by showing off those whom he has taken from death to life, from ugliness to beauty, from dirt to glory, from dead to perfect righteousness. And our revelation will not be for our glory, but for the glory of Jesus, whose sacrifice and whose love made us beautiful to God. So, those two truths... Truth one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and truth two, the revelation of his saints, both serve as the reason for truth number three, which is the revelation of Christ in his saints. Now, I'm not talking about that future event, the revelation of Christ in his saints. I just described that in the future. I'm talking about the revelation of Christ in his saints here, now, today. And I'm talking about it today and not the future, like Revelation 19, because in Colossians 3, 4, Paul is talking about today. So Paul's using a future reality, Christ appears, and when Christ appears, that's future, and when Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory, that's future. But there's this little parenthetical statement in Colossians 3, 4 that is about us today, which is about the revelation of Christ in us right now. And that statement is, when Christ, who is your life, appears. That little parenthetical statement, who Christ, who is your life. So I told you earlier that I was going to take these three truths and reword them, make them a little more tangible for you. Okay, so I'm going to reword them now. Truth number one, Christ will appear in glory. Truth number two, you will also appear with him in glory. Those two truths are supposed to determine how we live our lives today, and they create truth number three, which is Christ is your life. Meaning, though Christ has not been fully revealed in all of his glory to the entire world, he has set us as believers in this world to reveal himself through us. And in order to do this for his greatest glory, Christ has to be your life. I mean, it has to be your life. Think about that statement. It's a, it, it doesn't sound significant. But the reality of that statement in your life is more significant than anything else you could say. Christ is your life. If the joy of Jesus is to perfect his bride and the glory of Jesus is his bride perfected, then what does that tell you about how we ought to live our lives? It tells you that your life should be completely Christ-centered. So when Paul says, Christ, who is your life, he does not, he's not talking about Jesus gives you life. That's true, but that's not what he's saying here. Not at all. If you think about that future glory, that future glorification where we stand, where we ride, come riding in on horses with Christ in pure, perfect, glorified beauty of Jesus and all of his righteousness, the gown of perfection that we're wearing that he has purchased for us. When we're in that state, we're not going to think about like this difference. Well, there's my life and then there's the life I try to live for Christ. And thanks, thank God Christ gave me his life. This is not going to be, this, there's a distinction or a separation or a difference between Christ and us. We're going to go, I'm in Christ. There is no greater unity or communion than, than, than what I have now in the presence of my Savior and my God. There's not going to be a distinction. There's not going to be a separation. He's not going to be a distant guy we're following. We'll be fully, completely united, per perfectly and wholly and righteously united in Christ. He will be your existence, your breath, your life. We just read in Revelation 1.16 that when John sees Jesus, he sees his face and his face is like the sun shining in its fullest brightness. We can't, it's, 
And then at the end of Revelation, we see the new heaven and new earth. What do we see about Christ? There's no need for a sun because Christ and his glory is the brightness of heaven. His glory is unspeakable, unimaginable. This is why God said, Moses, you can't see my face. Your head will explode. You can't handle it. Because in our wretched sinfulness, we can't handle the glory of God in its visualized state. And Christ will be that glory. And we will be in it. In it. Our life will be it. We'll be in its presence constantly. There won't be these moments like we have today where it's like, man, we're at church today and Pastor Mark was preaching. I was like, yeah, that was good. I like it. Oh, we were worshiping. I was like, ooh, yeah, Jesus. And I, was having such, and I was just in the spirit, man. And then you go home and you eat lunch. You take a nap and you get up later and you watch some TV and then tomorrow comes and you're just not feeling the same as it felt Sunday at 12 o'clock, right? Not as full anymore. Tuesday, Wednesday, day goes on, weeks go, week goes on, days go by. And then every once in a while, you know, we like grab our Bible and read it and we're like, we get re- maybe, you, maybe you do it a lot. Maybe you do that a lot. And you just get in communion with God and you get filled with the Spirit and you're in the Word. You, 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 you can feel yourself declining and then you get in the Word and it's like, oof, I needed that feeling. Yeah, I'm in it. Maybe you have that roller coaster all the time. We all do. Christ had it in his flesh because he would do ministry and drain himself of the Spirit and have to go get refilled. That's our existence in this flesh. But at the revelation of Christ, there'll be no downhills. There'll be no slumps. We'll be in it. It'd be like, it'd be like walking around like this for the rest of our lives, just like this. You can't do anything but read the Bible. You're in the presence of Christ himself for eternity. There will be no moments without him. He will be your life. And what Paul is saying is, that's true today. Christ is your life. Jesus, Jesus is not just a separate life that we follow. He's not just a different person that we want to emulate. Jesus' life is not just an example. Jesus is our life. Our life is Christ. Our life is not sports or work or family or friends or church or entertainment or possessions or money or retirement or sex or anything else. Our life is Christ. Because Jesus will be revealed in his glory and finalize his victory over the enemies of God and because we will join him in that glory, then don't you think we ought to live our lives so fully and so joyfully and so vehemently and so passionately and so completely for Christ and in the power of Christ and to the glory of Christ? Jesus isn't just our religious leader. He is the cause of your existence and the purpose of your existence. He is not just your master. He is your heartbeat. He is your love. He is your meaning and purpose of life. And if that is true, then all other things should either fall away as meaningless or they should be filled with Christ in such a way that though the world does not see his glory in us as they one day will, they should see the glory of Jesus and the way we live our lives. Meaning our lives ought to be a pre-revelation of Christ, a current revelation of Christ. He and his word should not only influence our decisions and our attitudes and our hearts and our behaviors and our thoughts. He and his word should dictate, determine our decisions and attitudes and behaviors and thoughts. Do you do what you do because of Christ? or for Christ, or for greater intimacy with Christ, or to reveal Christ, or to experience Christ, or to love Christ, or to grow your affections for Christ, or to exalt Christ, or to glorify Christ, or to reveal Christ to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you do it to draw their affections toward him as your affections are drawn toward him? Why do you do what you do? Motivation matters. think that all of us. So I'm, I'm going to bring you down a little bit, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cast a little bit. It's going to feel like guilt for just a second. It's not guilt. I think it's a reality. I'm going to speak colloquially here, 
Okay, so this is not from the Bible. I'm not saying this is what's going to happen because the Bible doesn't describe it this way. I'm speaking colloquially, kind of loosely here, and it's going to feel a little guilt-ridden, and I'm going to lift you back up, okay? So just bear with me for a second as I try to shepherd you through this thought, okay? I think that all of us, 100% of us, when we see Jesus at his revelation in his fullness of glory, whether it's the moment we die and we see his glory or what, at the moment where we're glorified in our uh, resurrected bodies, I think we will weep in sorrow for how we wasted our lives on sex, money, work, toys, fun, entertainment, laziness. We will weep in sorrow for how much more we love things and ideas and objects and people more than we loved and served and sacrificed for Christ. We will weep in sorrow for how much value we gave other things and other people over Christ when we see his true value expressed in the glory of his revelation. And in our sorrow, so that's the... That's the bring down. That's the weight. I don't think we get it yet. And as much as I'm preaching about what we should get, I don't get it yet. Because I still love too much of the world. And that's why Paul says, just two verses earlier, in Colossians 3, 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is, see at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things that are above. Twice, Set your mind and seek the things that are above. And then he says, not on things that are on the earth. We're too worldly. We're way too worldly. Where's your money going? I bring up money because Jesus says money is one of the best indicators of your heart. One of the best indicators of your heart. Where's your money going? You're commanded to give. Do you give? And I know, oh, preacher's talking about money. You know what? If that's an issue for you, you're just going to have to get over it because Jesus talks about money a ton. I have to talk about money. And I have to talk about you and your money. Your money, your time in the word, your time in prayer, how you spend your money or whether you give, and your, your relationship or commitment to the church body, which means being at church and being involved. Those are four Four of the best and easiest godly disciplines that we should be practicing regularly. If you are not in the word, you're in sin. You're sinning. You need to be in the word. Okay? If you're not in prayer, it's sin. You have to commune with God and be in the word and be in prayer. You have to do those things. And if you're like, well, I don't feel like it, then just do it. Because you're commanded to do it. And as you do it, he will create the desire. You have to be a church. I get there are reasons to not be a church sometimes, okay? But... We have to be a part. We have to be involved in the, in the body. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Do not neglect meeting together. It's the habit of some. And you have to give. Because if your money, if you are holding your money too tightly, then you are not holding enough of Christ. You've got to hold that money loosely. It's not yours anyways. It's God's. He commands you to give it. So how are you spending it? What are you buying but not giving? What are you spending, but not giving? Where are you when you're not at church? What are you doing when you're not in the Word and in prayer? And I know that sounds like, oh, it's so legalistic and heavy. It's just so rule-oriented. It's, it's not rule-oriented. It's for your joy. It is for your good. You think I like giving money away to something that isn't me? Of course I don't like that. I love money. We're all lovers of money. I want more money. I want to buy big things. I want a new boat and a new big house and a big car. And I want to buy my wife extravagant gifts and shroud her in jewelry and send her on vacations and live the life. Man, do I want that. I want, I know I want that. I know you want that too. You might have different things you want, but you want something that is your flesh saying, what does the world have to offer me? And Paul said, set your mind on the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. Stop thinking about the world. You don't need boats or new homes or cars. I'm not saying you can't have those things. I'm just saying our minds and our hearts are set on those things. 
because we love money. And he's like, stop holding your money so tightly and give it. Why? Because I'm a giver. That's what God says. I give. And when you don't give, you're robbing me. Malachi 3.10. And if you, I'm just going to be honest here. Because I was talking to Christian about money one time. And, and he made a statement that I thought was extremely profound. And we were talking about people who give no one in particular, but people who give, but, but just give just a little bit, you know? Like I know like the standard giving is 10%, but that's not even in the Bible that you have to give 10%, but that's kind of what Christians run by. Either way, people who maybe give like, you know, if you make $50,000 a year, 10% is $5,000, right? So like, you know, do you give about 5000 I don't know. I, I'm not going to tell you how much you give or whatever. I'm not saying 10% is the standard, but my point is if you make $100,000 and you gave $700 or $500 or $1,000, that's a, that's a minuscule amount. And I'm not speaking as the pastor of a church who's trying to make budget. This has nothing to do with budget and nothing to do with money itself. God will provide. And if it's not through you, he'll find a way. He'll make a way. He's determined a way. Amen. We don't need your money. That's the reality. What God wants is your heart and money's in the way. And he's saying, give it up. So if you're given this little bit of amount... That's, that's essentially, Malachi 3.10, robbing God. And I said that to Christian, and he goes, what did you say? <laughs> the way you said it, I don't want to get it wrong. What did you say? If you're going to rob God, why don't you just rob him blind? If you're going to rob God, why don't you just rob him blind? You're already robbing him. Why give him anything? Why pretend by giving him 100 bucks from your $100,000. So again, this is not about percentages and how much you should give, whatever. It's about your heart. It's about abundance. Those four things, word, prayer, attendance at church or church involvement, and, and giving, those, those things are basic Christian disciplines that we have to pursue. And we don't because we love the world. And I think when we get to see the glory of Christ revealed, we are going to go, I can't, I can't believe I bought, I can't believe I bought a second home. I can't believe I spent money on this extravagant item or thing or went here or did that when I could have taken that money. Once you see the glory of Christ, I could have taken that money and, and, and give it to a missionary. Or spent it on building the kingdom. I'm not telling you to give all your money away. But I'm telling you, I know for a fact, I know for a fact that our congregation does not give very well. That a majority of our budget as a church is carried by five families. And there are 34 others who don't carry the giving. This is not about the church, not about the organization, not about the budget, not about supporting ministries, not about pastor needs to get paid. It's none of that stuff. Seriously, it's not about any of that. Because this is only and always will be about your heart. And I think we money is one of the best revealer, revealers of our love for the world. This is not about money. This is about our hearts. And I think we're going to weep one day when we see how we loved this world too much. Myself included, all of us, I think. So let's... Now again, that's... I hope that's not guilt-producing. I hope that's convicting. I pray that the Holy Spirit is just whoosh, working through your heart there. But here's the beauty. In that sorrow, in that weeping, in that agony over, I can't believe I wasted my life. He's going to say, you don't waste it. You did exactly what I commanded you to do. You did exactly as I ordained you to do. 
which is to get to my perfect, exalted glory, and he will wipe away by his grace and his mercy, will wipe away all those tears and remind us that he has sovereignly orchestrated our lives to bring us to this moment of being in awe of his holiness and his glory. And our sorrow will become joy at the thought of his grace to count us as his and to love us eternally, and our joy will be complete in knowing that we will never have to struggle with the angst of sin again. We'll never have to battle over our love for money or our love for the world will never have to seek the things that are above because we will be in the presence of above and we will live eternally pure and in perfect joy in his presence forever that should change the way you live your life today let's pray you're too good to us god we deserve nothing you give us everything We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would gloriously magnify his character and nature in the way that we live, the way that we talk and walk and think, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, where we go, our involvement in the church, our time in the word, our time in prayer. May your spirit fill us and cause us to grow in those things and become more and more sanctified because we want to be that beautiful bride that you love. Make us more righteous. Help us to reveal your glory as much as we can today in this life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.